Welcome to the DTB podcast for November 2015, volume 53, number 11. My name is David Fazakli. I'm DTB's deputy editor. And I'm James Cave. I'm DTB's editor-in-chief. So we begin this month with an editorial that discusses some of the major changes that have taken place at one of our sister publications, the British National Formery. Um, perhaps should declare an interest at this point, DTB is owned by BMJ. BNF is jointly published by BMJ and the Pharmaceutical Press, but both publications are editorially independent of each other. So edition 70 of BNF looks very different from previous issues. What sort of things will people notice? Well, the first thing is its size. I mean, this is a big, hefty journal now. It won't fit into your white coat, that's for sure. All those um, who are used to the sort of slim original now this is a much bigger a5 book with 1300 pages of really very tightly scripted information so it's as a book it's bigger as a digital publication how has it changed well there's some big moves in i think what's happening here obviously is as a shift towards the it solutions so we have some apps in the offing they're not out yet but there will be apps both for androids and for iphones to run your bnf through and there is also a beta, currently a beta website for BNF as well. So we've gone from a publication that started as a book, turned into a digital format, and probably didn't quite work perfectly in that. So they've now redesigned it into a digital format and produced the book out of the content that's been... It certainly created. feels like that, yes. Yeah. So I think there definitely is a shift now towards making the IT solution something other than just the book copied. So that people encourage to use the digital versions more than they would perhaps in the past and, and steer people more towards those than the book? I expect so. And I think, you know, the book is a piece of literature excellence. I mean, it is a lovely thing to behold and to feel. I mean, it's got that lovely, thin, crisp paper that the BNF has always had. But it must cost quite a lot to produce, I'd have thought. So as a resource, the book's great, sits on the shelf, is very usable. Digital content online is even better so overall, is it going to take people a while to get used to the new content and new format? I suspect so. I mean, there are, there are some changes. The index seems a little bit more helpful. It's clear where you need to go to find the information on a drug. In the past, you would go to one section on perhaps a drug and then find it says go elsewhere to find the details about it. So this time it does tend to lead you to the drug the f on the first occasion. But all in all, you know, the BNF has had a very important place in doctors and pharmacists' lives and increasing now, of course, prescribing nurses as well. And I think it's set to stay there for the foreseeable future. And perhaps we should make clear that if people have got comments on our editorial, by all means, email us at our usual address, dtbeditor at bmj.com. But if people have got comments on the new format BNF, then email the BNF editorial team at editor at bnf.org. And our first main article this month reviews a new topical treatment for rosacea. So first question, what, what is the product? And what's it licensed for? Yes, so this is ivermectin, which is a topical cream, 1%, which you apply just once a day to a particular type of rosacea. So papulopustular rosacea is the particular type of rosacea that this treatment is licensed uh, to treat. That's the sort of 
well, as its name implies, it's a sort of rosacea where you get large red, sometimes quite sore pustules or spots, rather than the telangiectic sort of red flushing that is another type of rosacea. So what is ivermectin? Yes, well, ivermectin is actually uh, an insecticide by design. And uh, one of the reasons they think it might have role in treating rosacea is that it seems to uh, be active against a little mite called Dermodex, which people do consider might be a cause of underlying rosacea. So there's a theory that it might do something to the Dermodex mite, also that it might have some other action? Yes, I think the general consensus, it does have an anti-inflammatory property as well. And, and I think people feel that given that you can get Dermodex mite infestations in people who don't have rosacea, the jury is still out whether that really is the uh, actual issue here with rosacea. Okay, so some nice theories on how it might or might not work. What about evidence? What does it do? Does it Have we got enough evidence to say it does anything? Well, I, you know, once in a while, you know, faith in life and everything is improved. And this is a case in point. We have got a new drug that's been licensed, which has actually got some really sound evidence to back it up. So we have some double-blind placebo-controlled trials which have looked at its effectiveness versus placebo, which show that over 12 weeks using what they used, what they called investigators global assessment. So this was the doctor's assessment on how well cleared up someone's rosacea had been. There was clear that about 40% or so of patients given ivermectin had a clearance rate of at least clear or almost clear, and the placebo only achieved about half that. So that was a placebo-controlled trials. And then we do have, which is really quite remarkable, some studies where they've compared ivermectin with two of the other main treatment options for pustular papular rosacea, uh, metronidazole, topical metronidazole, and azelaic acid. And once again, both in both those situations, it's at least comparable to them and has less side effects in the form of skin irritation, particularly compared to azelaic acid. So it seems to do something against placebo. It seems to do something perhaps better than existing treatments and has fewer adverse effects and is comparably sort of probably price-wise much you know much the same you know the, the tube costs more but then it's only a once a day preparation rather than twice or more so it looks as if it's a comparable sort of cost any major harms i mean obviously it looks so it seems to be better tolerated than the existing ones was there anything particularly to worry about well there's just this this fact that it because it does have insecticidal properties invertebrates it just, you know there is a environmental issue here in the sense that one must be careful about i suppose ensuring that i don't know whether you might keep invertebrates in your house but if you have rosacea and you happen to care for your invertebrates you might just kill them off if you haven't washed your hands first so something about its um, toxicity environmentally or its environmental toxicity, but actually not quite clear what that means. No, no, and uh, as I say, no, I don't know any invertebrate keepers myself, but perhaps if I worked in a zoo, I might have to be careful. Okay, thank you very much. And our second main article, breathing exercises for adults with asthma. Uh, perhaps start off with what's the theory behind this? So, interestingly, about a third of all women and a fifth of all men, if you do, if you look at their breathing asthmatics, you find that, that about that number have just what they call dysfunctional breathing. So this might be an element of uh, hyperventilation or something similar. So the theory behind this is that if you can give people exercises or train them to breathe in a non-dysfunctional way, you may improve their asthma. And what sort of exercises 
do we cover? So we've tried in this article to cover the whole gamut. So we have the sort of pattern change breathing exercises of which the classic ones are Buteco breathing and Papworth. You've then got inspiratory strength or strength breathing. You've got other breathing exercises that look at flexibility of the thoracic rib cage. And then you've got the other sort of, they're not really excess breathing exercises, but things like yoga and the Alexander technique. And is there much evidence out there? Well, yes, there does seem to be evidence to support the use, particularly of the pattern change breathing exercises, so Papworth and Buteyko. The trouble with this is that if you look at the Cochrane Review, they found that the studies that really can demonstrate some improvement in quality of life indicators, use of relieving medication, these usually involve situations where there's been at least five hours intervention into the patients. And of course, that makes you begin to wonder whether there's a a Hawthorne effect here where it's it's that intervention itself which is having some impact but it does seem to show that you can demonstrate some improvement in quality of life and reliever inhaler use. So it tends to be those outcomes as opposed to measures of breathing. Precisely if you do FEV ones or if you do spirometry or even if you look at background the step level of patients with asthma there seems to be no change in that at all. And so of the, of the ones that we've looked at, most of the evidence is for the, the two that you, you've mentioned. Do they feature in the guidelines? Yes. Um, what's interesting is BTS produced its new asthma guidance towards the end of last year, and both Buteco and Papworth have a mention, and a prominent mention, in the new guidance. And SIGN, who do the BTS guidance, still rate their evidence from A down to D, depending on its quality, and they give it a a rating of an A-class evidence. So they suggest that this is there's good quality evidence to support the use of these techniques in patients with asthma. But the slight difference of opinion from... Well, that's right, because GINA, which is the big global guidance producers, have actually just downgraded their evidence for breathing techniques slightly. So, I, I, you know, it's difficult to know quite where we're going here, but I think... The general consensus across the board is that there is a place for breathing exercises in some asthmatics. And you talked about the amount of time it takes to train people. Is, is that like to be an issue in routine practice? Yes, I mean, that's exactly the issue here with whether we'll be able to use the same level of interventions in patients. You know, asthma is a very common disease, and to be able to offer all people respiratory exercises would be uh, pretty unobtainable and presumably require a trained trainer in order to deliver it. So presumably most of this is done by physiotherapy? Yes, I think most most uh, areas, this is part of the respiratory rehab team, which is usually made up of physiotherapists. So access might be an issue. I, I think it would be a, a huge issue. Okay, thank you very much. To read these and any of our articles, please visit our website, dtb.bmj.com. And if you have any comments on the podcast or our content please email us at dtbeditor at bmj.com thank you for listening